Okay, so Nelson Covenant Church is nested within a denomination in Canada called the Evangelical Covenant Church of Canada, which is nested within a larger denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church that's uh, based out of the United States. And if, even if you don't know a lot about the Covenant Church, one of the words that's connected to the Covenant Church is the word pietism. Has anyone here ever heard the term pietism before? Okay, so a few of you. Pietism refers to a strand. So you have kind of like the Catholic Church, Martin Luther, Reformation, wants to reform the church, ends up protesting the abuses of the Catholic Church and, and leads, and what unfolds very quickly is the Protestant Reformation. And then the Protestant Reformation kind of branches off into all kinds of subgroups who have slightly differing priorities, but they're all kind of rooted to Luther's insistence on the word of God and living faith and passionate about commitment, a personal uh, relationship with Jesus and not just having the church be a, a, a religious me uh, mechanism between you and God. And the pietist tradition, out of which comes the covenant church, included an emphasis on three things, an individual relationship with God, a strong devotion to the scriptures as the final authority for what it means to be and to uh, to be a Christian and to serve God faithfully in the world, and a strong understanding of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And that's a fancy way of saying a strong belief that a genuine Christian is going to grow tangibly in maturity and holiness as they move through their life. The Holy Spirit works in us to bring about Christ-like character. Now, if you think about that, kind of like individual relationship with God, the importance of the Bible, the importance of growing in holiness, that's generally speaking what a lot of people would lump in with under the umbrella of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. And that's why the covenant decided to call itself the evangelical covenant church to kind of say these, this is kind of the, the, the tracks that we run on. These are the priorities that, that set the pace for us. Um, within the Reformation, the pietists who they came to be referred to, they wanted to return and, and, and um, after the Reformation starts to build, what eventually happens is a lot of Europe it becomes Christianized, but kind of in a state church way. So in Sweden, what you have is the Lutheran state church, meaning if you're born in Sweden, you're kind of like autumn, like you were baptized into the uh, Swedish church, you were automatically a Lutheran, just by birthright. So being a Christian was really a kind of a civic religion. It's something that it would be like being a, a Canadian or a, someone born in Ontario. It just kind of passively happened to you. And so what the pietists saw is they said, that's not actually what the Bible talks about when it says what it means to be a Christian. And those aren't really the conditions of being baptized. And all these people are moving through life, good, noble, nice people, and they think of themselves as Christians, but they're actually at odds with what the Bible says is a Christian who is someone who's, like Bethany spoke to, isn't just a good person and isn't just kind of like knows and believes stuff about God, but is turned over their entire life to Jesus and is saying, I want to serve you and love you with my whole life and I need you to save me from my sin and give me new life. And so the pietists within this kind of culture where everybody was a Christian, they sought to come back to Luther's emphasis on you need to have a living faith. You need to get into the power of the Bible and we need to be a church where it's not a, about the hierarchy, it's about every single uh, man, woman, and child can be an avenue through which God can bless the world. A lot of people thought that the pietists, after kind of the ball got rolling with some of them, were kind of a little odd for three reasons. 
they were super insistent that the Bible was the final authority. They were, you know, they, there was a kind of a catchphrase, where is it written? So whenever people had ideas about God or how they should live, they would always be like, they would always kind of say, where is that written? Kind of like citation needed, please. Might sound good, might sound Christian, it might be throwing a lot of Bible words around, but like where in the Bible are you, in, are you getting that direct line? And if they couldn't trace it back to scripture, they would hold it very lightly and very loosely. Where is it written? And they scrutinized all of life in light of scripture. So again, they weren't just interested in like, I go to Sunday and I'm a Christian and I'm generally a good person. They thought through everything from the arts and how, what the, how, they, um, how they prepared meals and how they went through their day and the minutia of life and saying, how do I honor God in these everyday, normal, what some might even see uh, non-religious uh, activities. They say, all, they say all of life is an opportunity to glorify God. And a lot of people saw the pietists as ecclesi- ecclesiastically disordered, which is a fancy way of saying the way they structured their church and their meetings together seemed really upside down because they were really big into lay participation. It wasn't just the clergy and the official professional ministers who kind of control and led everything. And they had a lot of accountability towards their professional uh, ordained ministers that were a part of their groups. And they really pushed small group Bible studies. That was actually the vehicle through which they said, that's gonna help renew Lutheranism from being just kind of a state church, yeah, we're all Christians, we go to church on Sunday. It's like, okay, but do you get together with other Christians during the week, dig into the Bible and talk and wrestle with what this scripture means in terms of you living out your faithfulness to Jesus? So these small groups were called conventicles and they were these groups of men who would come together and study the scriptures and discuss it and then apply it to their lives. Now, I just read a book about, that I'm doing for a, a theology course through the covenant, and it's kind of looking at the legacy of pietism and how it's kind of connected to us as a covenant church today. And there's three people that this one historian said are, serve as kind of the pillars for covenant, for modern kind of covenant thought, but the three pillars of pietism. The first is Jacob Spaner, who wrote a really significant theological work. He was sort of like the mind person of the movement. And then you had August Frankel, who was really about serving. He, he, did a, he did a lot of thinking about how do we live as Christians in such a way that we build institutions such that our grant, that, that you know, four or five generations from now inherit the legacy of faith. So he did a lot of work around education reform and creating schools and hospitals and nursing homes and uh, uh, just amazing, but he, he really thought on a big scale of like institutional blessing of momentum moving forward. And the last person that I want to look at today is Johanna Peterson. She's considered one of the three kind of uh, theological and philosophical pillars of the Piastic movement. And what's interesting about Spainer and Franke and Peterson is they all lived in the same era, just kind of in the start to the near end of the 17th century. And they were all friends. They all, over the course of their life, came to know each other. And they all kind of had once they met each other, they had kind of a really interesting dialogical co-formation as leaders within the movement. And so they weren't just kind of like these, it wasn't like movement sort of grabbed different ideas from these three different sources. It kind of bubbled up from their friendship. So I want to share with you the story of Johanna Peterson and kind of explore its significance today. 
So Peterson grew up in a poor family, but a noble family, which means she had noble status, but she didn't actually have any wealth. Her childhood was really, really difficult. Very early on, she experienced the death of her mother, who Johanna loved and wrote about her love in her autobiography. <clears throat> and she moved through the social struggles that were associated with reconstructing Germany after a really brutal 30 years war. Her father was a really strict man. He had wanted an heir and had been, um, he was disappointed that he'd only been given four girls. So his, uh, you know, he, wasn't, he wasn't going to have an heir. And so he essentially hired a bunch of women and outsourced the care of his daughters to those women. And most of those women were very neglectful. When Johanna was 12, she was sent to live with her Countess Barbara Maria von Solmsrodenheim. <laughs> okay, so this Countess was wealthy, but she was actually sick, and she suffered from extended bouts of depression, and she was really incapable of caring for Johanna properly. So then, Johanna's father moved her to the home of her godmother, Duchess Anna Margaretha, to be a lady-in-waiting. And in the house of the Duke and Duchess, this is where Johanna's life sort of began to stabilize a little bit. And in this place of privilege and wealth, she enjoyed for a season a generally happy life. She was exposed to travel. She moved in interesting social circles. She learned the way of the world. And she began to get a taste for the finer things in life. But all through that, Johanna writes in her autobiography, she still struggled with faith. She had been born Christian and grew up in a Christian culture, but she was also lacking of purpose and identity in her life. She'd done a lot of moving, there had been a lot of instability, not a lot of focused care as she was growing up. She had a lot of reasons to run from God instead of to God, and yet she still maintained a tenuous hold. She would often go to services, she would even sometimes memorize scriptures, uh, memorize sermons, she was faithful in trying to kind of willpower herself through this place of doubt and dryness. After living with the Duchess Anna Margaretha for a number of years, Peterson became, pleasure, or became accustomed to the pleasures of life, good food, beautiful clothes, decadent parties, but faith continued to tug at her heart. She, the older she got into her late adolescence, she had a haunting sense that she wasn't actually a true Christian. She writes this in her autobiography. No one would have said that my life wasn't right. Every, everyone praised such vanities and considered me very blessed and very pious because I read and I prayed and I went to church and I was often able to recapitulate entire sermons in every detail. And this pleased everybody. I was considered a pious lady by all, ministers, lay people. Although I led a life with love, and desire for the goods of this world. I had not yet entered the following of Christ. Peterson realized that what had a foothold in her life was what I talked to the kids about this morning, idolatry. There were all these other things that were good things, but they had taken the place of prominence in her life. That she hadn't delighted herself in the Lord. She was seeking to find her life by following her desires in the things of this world and keeping God kind of, kind of tethered, you know, close, but certainly not central. 
and faith continued to tug on her heart. And then she had a chance meeting in her travels with Jacob Spainer, who had already committed his life to Christ and was starting to write theology about what it means to follow Jesus and how we were going to reform the Lutheran state church in Sweden. In one meeting that lasted several hours, this is what Peterson, Johanna Peterson, wrote about that encounter with Spainer. We entered into a spiritual conversation that lasted several hours. We talked together without stopping, and it was as if Spainer were looking into my heart and everything that had given me doubts until then came out. Not a word was lost that was not in God's spirit. I remembered all when the time came for actual practice. Yes, I love this line. I found in this friend what I doubted would exist in anyone in this world because I had looked for so long to see whether there were any true active Christians. And so Johanna saw in Jacob not only wisdom, but humility and meekness and a holy love for God, what she would call a living faith, not just a belief that things are true. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. She, she could recite creedal formulations and doctrines, but she saw in Spainer a soul lit aflame with love for God. She subsequently turned her life over to Christ and all overnight began realizing and, and experiencing God transforming what were outward expressions of obedience, but they were outwardly driven, now became driven from devotion within her own heart. There's kind of three kind of major categories of Johanna's ministry that shaped the Piastic tradition and then still shapes us today. The first is her spiritual autobiography. She was one of the first women to ever write a spiritual autobiography. And people loved it because it was real and authentic and she detailed, certainly for the time, in unflinching ways, her own sinfulness and brokenness despite by outward appearances having it all together and being very godly and very pious. Um, she talked a lot in her biography about how coming to Jesus presented a new challenge for her because what was particularly challenging to her was Jesus' command to love her enemies. And as she grew in confidence of who she was and who she was called to be in Christ, as we'll find out in a moment, as she moved into greater and greater kind of informal leadership within piastic circles, the Lutheran church began to clamp down on her, began to write slanderous things about her, began to spread rumors about her. And she talks in her spiritual autobiography about how it was very just difficult to spend time praying for the blessing of her enemies. But her spiritual autobiography became tremendously popular around pietists, and the people who read it saw it as a, a, a real gritty paradigm for Christian living. It wasn't just, my life was kind of just going, and then I became a Christian, and everything worked out, and it was super awesome. She talked, she talked about um, contending in the faith and the real challenge of loving God and loving your neighbor well. That was kind of her big thing was how do you, what does it really mean to live out this greatest commandment? Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, she said. She called love an excellency. An excellency was a word that was used back then that we might call today a virtue. And she didn't talk about it simply as an emotion. She said love is an excellency. It's something that you have to practice. You have to grow in. God has to bring to life in you, but you also have to, almost like a skill and talent hone, you have to grow in the virtue of love. And as you do, 
God will give you greater and greater opportunity to grow in your love for him and neighbor. But she says, love is the virtue that bears witness to the gospel. So one was her spiritual autobiography. The second was her theological writing. At this time, 17th century, the only people who were allowed to write theology were men, because only men were ordained and had the proper intellectual training to be able to parse and interpret scripture properly. So what um, Johanna did is she did theological writing uh, with her husband. So they would write uh, treaties or different opinion papers together, which still kind of kind of got her in trouble, but it allowed people to say, well, she's still under the authority of her husband, so we can't really, she's not writing on her own. So she's kind of gaming the system a little bit, but she's pretty clever. And one of the interesting things was, theologically, people really resonated with her um, thinking about stuff. It was very clear that she knew her stuff. When she became a Christian, one of the things that she said was, I need to understand the Bible really, really well. Otherwise, how, I don't want to get my information secondhand, even from godly uh, ministers. I want to know this stuff myself. So she self-taught herself Greek and Hebrew and started learning the original language, mastered them, and then began using that as a platform to write and to hone her thinking, not just devotionally, which we'll talk about in a moment, but also theologically. And some of her treaties were pretty amazing. They, they, oh, and they were pretty, there was, it was a style that had never been done before. And the style was she wrote as if she was having a conversation with someone. I say this, but you might say to me, well, how does that make sense? Because that seems irrational. Well, you have to understand, you know, Psalms say this and Jesus taught this. Okay, but you might object. So it was very dialogical and people loved reading it because it was really, really heady, rich theology, but it was done through a much more dialogical, relational uh, um, kind of framework that people picked up on and loved. She would address questions like, what does discipleship in response to Jesus' passion look like? What is it that, why is it that Christians who are people of peace wage war among themselves? What's the relationship between the two natures of Christ? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Whom does God, who is essentially love, eventually save? So she had the theological writing. But maybe her biggest contribution is her emphasis on conventicles and small group Bible study. She saw conventicles like Spainer as the avenue through which kind of sleepy Christians or people who thought they were Christians could become alive to the gospel and Christians could really dig into discipleship and work with and support each other in moving forward in faith. And so she trained people and specifically girls and women how to hold conventicles for themselves because to this point, conventicles were men only, then the men would go home and then they would teach their wives what they were taught at the conventicles. So small group Bible studies weren't open to women. Individual study of scripture wasn't really open to women. But Peterson believed that one of the most faithful ways she could love her neighbors was by reading, teacher, and teaching, and preaching the word. And so she wanted to create an entire generation of pietists, certainly, but definitely women, who, like her, wanted to really think through the Christian faith, wanted to wrestle with their faith and really get in Scripture. And while she was living with one of her, uh, with Frau Bauer, 
uh, later in her life, or, well, I think it was about 10 years after she came to Christ, she started to educate young girls in reading scripture. So um, this lady that she lived with ran a boarding school from her home, and Peterson taught a small group of girls every day general subjects of education, but also how to read and apply scripture devotionally. And then even with the older girls, began to teach them a little bit of basic Greek. Girls, it needs to be noted, girls were not otherwise exposed to scripture in such a direct manner. They had to be taught through someone else, getting together and learning it directly there was no other vehicle for this in that society at the time. And Peterson equipped them for a life of reading and learning. And then what happened is in her dialogue with Spainer, she said, I think it would be awesome, you know, when she was thinking about the conventicles, which were male only, she was, I think it'd be great for women to be able to join the conventicles or women to have their own conventicles. And Spainer was like, yeah, totally, you have my blessing. So Spainer allowed her to break off into a, a separate school of pietists called the Selhoff Pietist Group which were a group of women that would meet together to discuss and study scriptures together. This lasted only for, in the initial phase, for about five years because there was increasingly, um, Lutheran church brought increasingly strong uh, kind of sanctions against them. But for five years, it exploded and people loved it. And even the men in the group, when they got acclimatized to having women share their reflections on scripture, a lot of the men were really sad to see it shut down. So with the support of her piestic friends, Johanna is definitely a woman within Christian history that we should celebrate. She faithfully stewarded her gifts for the good of other people, and in so doing, she suggested new possibilities for lay people to engage the scriptures. She really pushed and said, you gotta, get, you gotta know this thing on your own. You, you, gotta, you gotta get in this, even though it's gonna be challenging, and it's gonna stretch your mind, it's gonna stretch your heart. It's going to stretch you in every dimension, but that's what it means to be a living Christian and to be a passionate Christian, to be shaped and formed by the text. And that was her message to everybody, men and women. But it was a revolutionary message, obviously, for women who had, who to that point had to have faith and uh, ideas of scripture and applications of discipleship filtered through at least several series of uh, uh, you know, church hierarchy and or men in their life. Although expanding gender, one historian said this, although expanding gender roles in the Piastic movement was indeed a huge hallmark of Johanna's legacy, even more exciting was that women's engagement with scripture challenged their faith and work in their lives in new ways. So I just want to share three really quick reflections just on Johanna's life. I read this story. I actually read it three times uh, since last week. Really, really awesome. The first is this. Uh, Spainer talked about how faith is the virtue that points to the gospel. Genuine living faith is the virtue. It's the excellency that points to the gospel. And Johanna built on that, and she said, but love is the virtue that embodies the gospel. You cannot be a genuine Christian if you believe simply that you have faith in God in that abstract sense, but it doesn't actually transform how you love people. And that was kind of the, the hammer that she drove again and again and again. It's faith in the true and living God as revealed by his word, and, and that points people to the truth of God. But if we do not excel in the excellencies of love, 
of loving our neighbors well, then the gospel doesn't get embodied. It becomes something abstract. It becomes something to, maybe I believe that it's true, but I don't believe in it. I don't give my life for it. I don't lean into it. I don't surrender to it. It can become simply a civic, abstract religion. Galatians 5, 6 became particularly important to her as she reflected on her life, where Paul is talking about all the different rituals that some Christian, some Jewish Christians thought, well, you can be a real Christian, but you've got to be able to get these Jewish virtues into your life. You can't just have your faith in Christ. It has to be these, and there was all these arguments about exactly what rituals and what religious hoops you have to jump through. And Johanna said, she's, she's centered in on this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That was a really big hermeneutical kind of key for her. If faith is the virtue that points to the gospel, love is the virtue that embodies the gospel. We're called, certainly as a covenant people, to love well and to never shrink back from the challenge in our marriages, in our friendships, in our, with our coworkers, um, uh, in our small groups, in every sphere, to be growing at becoming better lovers. How do I grow in the excellencies of love and care towards people around me? Number two, and this is something that one of the historians that I was reading mentioned, the importance of writing and reflection in your life. It's really important to carve out spaces, and I'm preaching to myself here, to write and not type, like write longhand, and reflect on what God has been doing in your life. It's a worthy, I don't know if I, I haven't done it, um, and I don't, to be honest, immediately plan to do it, but this got me thinking for the first time, do I need to start kind of having a journal where I chart sort of my own spiritual autobiography to begin to see in a different way from a dif different perspective as I get older how God has moved in my life from a big picture point of view. Psalm 72.12 says, God, I will meditate on all your work, and then the NRSV translation, translation says, and muse on your mighty deeds. Taking time to reflect and to pause and to consider what God has done as revealed in scripture, but also what he's done in your own life uh, has a tremendous faith-building effect. And sometimes we get so busy just getting caught up in the momentum of life and years can go by and we feel like God is distant because we haven't taken the time to stop and pray and reflect on all the ways that he's been present through that life. The historian that I was reading said, writing and reflections, those spiritual disciplines, when they're centered on God's word and our own experiences, are essential because they turn us towards God. They force us to reflect on the ways that God has been faithful that don't immediately come to mind when someone says, well, how have you experience God's faithfulness this week? Oh, I don't know. Well, you sit there for 20 minutes and begin journaling and praying about it. You'll have a lot of things come to your mind, I bet. And so taking time to journal and reflect and to write and then to even to know that sometimes you will do that and maybe you'll post it on a blog, maybe someone else will find it in your family, maybe you'll pass it along in a letter to a friend and that will have a wake of ministry effects as you honestly give voice to your spiritual journey. And number three, never underestimate the intergenerational power of a godly woman. Never underestimate the intergenerational power of a godly woman. Johanna Peterson, 300 years later, we're talking about her 
if you do anything that approximates what most evangelicals call a daily devotional, where you read a little bit of scripture and then reflect on how it applies to your life, she was one of the forerunners of that kind of engagement. And that's what she pushed Christians to do. You know, they weren't using that way of engaging scripture in the first or second or third century. Johanna Peterson was one of those people who said, I think this is an effective way to get the Bible into the hands of people, but to force them through how now should I live given what scripture says. It's an amazing story that shows us what happens, not just in a generation, but Johanna thought generations ahead, right? She thought about training girls. Uh, I did some research, and one of the interesting things that the historian didn't talk about is whether or not Johanna Peterson had any children. So I don't think she did, because I did a ton of different uh, historical searches. There's not a lot written on her, but as far as I could find, she had no children. She was married, but no children. And yet there are literally millions of people in the wake of the Piastic movement moving into the covenant, eventually the evangelical covenant church, that for whom she is a spiritual mother, maybe unknowingly, but in terms of the theological um, priorities that she laid down and the emphasis on pursuing a life of faith that is alive and engaged and is seeking to serve and honor Jesus and to love well, that is something that her influence continues, um, yeah, just continues to play out in amazing and surprising ways. You know, I hadn't, I'd only heard of her very tangentially before this course and I read her autobiography and stuff and it was like, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. So as we celebrate Mother's Day and celebrate really all mothers this morning and all women, I hope this story is an encouragement to you. It's really inspiring and encouraging to me. It's a story of faithfulness and one sense of a simple faith grounded in scripture and seeking to love God and love neighbors well, but um, also a story of how God can take a very meager offering like that and use it to transform not just your life and not just a life in the community around you, but the world for generations to come. Let's pray. God, we thank you for women in church history who have heard your call and responded in faith that you have gifted to shape the ministry of your church and who have left and continue to leave amazing legacies of faith. And God, this morning, we would just ask that all women here present would be encouraged and built up, regardless of how they moved into this space. I know Mother's Day can be challenging the gamut of emotions. Are, we, we, there's a huge spectrum of emotions that can be experienced on this morning, but I pray that as we reflect on Johanna Peterson's life, that it would inspire us that when, uh, as men and women, we labor in you, uh, our labor is not in vain, and you will bring about a harvest and a fruitfulness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.